So, we are in the midst of a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, but over the next couple of weeks, we are going to take a short break from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, hopefully, uh, the series is one that, that has been blessing you, you've been enjoying uh, learning the things that we've been learning in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but over the next couple of weeks, we're going to uh, take a, a Christmas break, if you will. Um, I'm not typically one to preach um, based on holidays. Uh, sometimes I think that that can be kind of cheesy. And uh, you guys that have known me for a while uh, know that Christmas isn't always my favorite time of year. Now, for those of you that don't know, uh, I am what my children describe as the Grinch. Okay, I am the one who has no Christmas cheer. I'm the one that nitpicks everything. And out of all the holidays, you would expect the pastor to love Christmas. And so when people ask me why I don't like Christmas, I always point to a particular scene in the movie Elf. Uh, last week when we were here, uh, um, I'm sorry, when we were at home, um, Allison wanted to watch Elf with the kids. And so I begrudgingly said, okay, it's my least favorite Christmas movie. And raise your hand if you've seen the movie Elf. Okay, all right, cool. So you guys know that there's a part in this movie where he sits down for breakfast at his dad's house. And he's got a bowl of spaghetti. And, and on that bowl of spaghetti, he dumps a lot of maple syrup. He dumps candy. He crushes up chocolate Pop-Tarts, and, and he puts that over the, the, the pile of spaghetti. He puts marshmallows, and he starts to eat. And, and, and he's so into it that he just gr- grabs it with his hands and shoves it in his face. Okay? And all of us have the same reaction when we see that scene. We look at it, and we're like, Ugh, that is disgusting. It is this tremendous sugar overload, Right? That is what the Christmas season feels like to me, like a tremendously over-the-top sugar overload. And, uh, and, and so I have always kind of um, been grinchy about it, and, and I've always nitpicked the things about Christmas that uh, are historically inaccurate. I was, I was telling Allison yesterday that I've never been much of a history buff, uh, or, or at least I wasn't when I was growing up. It's only in, in recent years that history has become um, more fascinating to me. And so there are a lot of things about the Christmas story that uh, are either misconstrued, there, there's misconceptions that we have, uh, or, or things that we've missed entirely. And we've become so accustomed to a routine about things. We've memorized Christmas carols. We've memorized the the particular visuals. And oftentimes don't realize that the things that we're saying or, or, or looking at may not necessarily be accurate. And in addition to that, we're missing golden nuggets of truth that uh, because we're so much in a routine that we always miss out on. And so I want to focus particularly this week and next week on the nativity scene, okay? Uh, For anybody that's been in our church 
for a long time, uh, you may recognize the things that we go over today. Uh, because some of this material comes from some messages that I preached several years ago. But one of the things that we experienced this past weekend, uh, we went to the Creation Museum and we went to the Ark Encounter, um, both by Answers in Genesis. And it was an awesome experience. It, it was so cool because you're literally walking through visuals of Scripture. And so you're able to, to put, put pictures and images in your imagination to, to, to really begin to, to picture what these things were like. And it was awesome for me to, to walk my children through that, to show them, okay, this is what it might have looked like, to help them understand stories that we've told, but now they can imagine vividly. And there was one particular uh, thing that we did. We, we watched this, uh, this video where you're in this theater where you recline back and, and the ceiling is a screen. And so it was, it was really trippy. And, uh, and, and one of the things that, uh, that is mentioned is the wise men, the magi. And it got me to thinking about the significance of the wise men. Significance that so few people know about. You see, we sing songs about the wise men. We, we put the figurines of the wise men in front of the nativity scene. But we don't realize the significance for them in the story. And so, what I want to do today is take a deep dive. This week and next week, I want to take a deep dive in history. And so, if you're like me and hidden don't really matter... Take heart, because hopefully what we'll see today is a picture of history that illuminates the scriptures. A picture of history that makes you go, wow, I had no idea that that was even in there. Hopefully today the picture of history that you see gives you an appreciation at Christmas for something that you have never appreciated before. So, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, and we will be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And specifically, what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 2 is the wise men, and why the details about who the wise men were, why they were there, is important for us today. That it's not just a cute story. It's not an insignificant detail in history. It is profoundly impactful for how we celebrate the fact that Jesus is the king. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus, born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly 
and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, the wise men. All right, I don't have to spend a whole lot of time talking about the contemporary view of the wise men. We're all pretty familiar with the popular thought, okay? We refer to them as the three kings or the magi. And, and we're all familiar with how these guys are depicted. There's these three wise men who are typically traveling on camels and they're wearing royal robes and fancy turbans and they come from the Orient and they arrive on the night of Jesus' birth and they present him these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We have it on the nativity scene in front of our house or, or in front of our Christmas tree and maybe you're one of those families that, that puts one new figurine every day leading up to the nativity And as the popular Christmas carol sings, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse from afar, right? Me and my brothers, of course, used to sing the alternative version of that carol. We three kings of Orient are trying to light a loaded cigar. Boom, right? Well, now, let's take a a better look at the wise men, okay? Although the Bible doesn't name the three kings, In the 6th century, church tradition handed down some given names, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. And various church traditions placed them in different areas, some from Persia, some India, some Babylon. They're they're pictured as astrologers because of their view of the stars, and, and they didn't previously know each other. They sort of join together on this journey following the star. And they're usually depicted as pagans or Zoroastrians whose study of the stars led them to find the king of the Jews. Most Hispanic cultures, mine included, celebrate on June 6th, El Dia de los Tres Reyes, Three Kings Day. And on Three Kings Day, the tradition is that children will take shoeboxes and put hay in them and and leave them out and and the camels come and eat the hay. And they wake up to find that the camels have eaten the hay, the three kings have come to visit, and the children's shoeboxes are filled with gifts. But who were the three kings actually? Is it possible to know? And and perhaps a better question is, Does it really matter who they were? After all, does the identity of these men and the purpose of their mission have any bearing on us whatsoever today? I would submit to you that the answer to that question is yes. First of all, because it's in the Bible, right? And anything that is in the Bible is profoundly important. But I'd like to show you that even though we will 
likely never know their names or how many there were, what they were doing and how they were doing it has some pretty incredible lessons for us today. So we're going to start by looking at some misconceptions about the wise men. And after we look at these misconceptions and clear them up, then we'll start to do a, a bit of a deep dive into some history. And then at the end, we'll, we'll finish with some practical lessons from those things. And as we do this, I confess I'm going to be throwing out a lot of information. It'll be kind of a fire hose that's going on. And some of the stuff that I might talk about might seem frivolous or irrelevant, um, but stick with me. Because hopefully by the end, those pieces will come together and, and they're going to paint a pretty awesome picture. And, and so I'll try to make sure as we're going through this that it doesn't get dull or boring. Okay? So let's first start with some misconceptions. All right? Misconception number one. The first misconception that we have about the wise men is that they were there on the night of Jesus' birth. Again, we, we have the nativity scene. All in a stable with the three guys and their camels showing up with their gifts. But nearly every scholar and historian agrees that the wise men were not present on the night of Jesus' birth. And there's several pieces of evidence within the text that, that point to this. Uh, the first is in verse 1 where it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod. After he's born, in the days of King Herod. This language indicates that the arrival of the wise men was sometime after the birth of Jesus in that time period that followed. And taken by itself, that might seem inconsequential, but taken from the second piece, uh, put together with the second piece of evidence that we have from the text, it makes sense. Verse 11, it says, And going into the house, going into the house, they saw the child. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. We first notice here, hopefully, that they're in a house, okay? And that's something that we're going to look at next week. Because what we're going to talk about next week is the fact that your nativity scene is woefully inaccurate, okay? I hate putting up nativity scenes because they do not depict what history shows. And so next week we're going to take a deep dive into the nativity scene and what it actually looked like. But spoiler alert, we're talking about a house, Okay, and then here in the text we see the word for Jesus is the word child. And especially in the Greek, that is significant. When the shepherds come to visit Jesus on the night of his birth, the night that he's born, the Greek word for newborn is used. But when the wise men arrive, Matthew uses a Greek word that typically translates as toddler. So, according to Matthew, when the wise men arrive, Jesus is a toddler. And they're living in a house, okay? And this makes sense in light of the reaction of King Herod, okay? King Herod, in the following passage, wants to eliminate the threat to his throne and kill the king of the Jews. And so he commands that every male child two years old or younger will be slaughtered. So that indicates that Jesus could be up to two years old at the time. 
So the wise men don't show up on the night that Jesus is born. The wise men show up up to two years after Jesus was born. So they were not present at the nativity scene. So you can go ahead and pluck them out when you get home. The second misconception is that there were three wise men. Simply put, the text does not tell us how many there were. All we know for sure is that there were more than one. According to some of the historical studies that I've read, there could have been a dozen or more. And and of course, the depiction uh, of the three kings comes from the fact that there were three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and and myrrh. But, But that doesn't mean that the number of gifts corresponds to the number of wise men. According, actually, to the custom of the day, each one of the wise men regardless of their number, would have each given Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So every one of those guys, however many they had, would have been giving him those three things. And each of those gifts had particular significance. These are gifts that are given to royalty, but they're gifts given in conjunction with each other. So it's not like they put their heads together and they were like, hey, um, has anyone gone shopping? Uh, what, what are you getting? Uh, um, I'll, I'll get him some gold. Hey, you want to get, get some frankincense? Uh, hey, hey Melchi, you, you want to grab some myrrh? That's not how it went. Each of the three kings, or however many there were, would have given him all three gifts. Okay? Misconception number three. They were following a star. Now again, when we look strictly at the text... It does not tell us that they followed a star. It says that they saw a star. Verse 2, where's the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So in, in other words, they see the star and they know to go to Israel. Now the text does tell us that after leaving Herod, the star went before them and and comes to rest over the house where Jesus was. But the way that the verse reads to me anyway tells us that this may have been the first time in their journey that they have been directed by it. They say, behold, like, hey, check this out. There's that star again. And sure enough, it's going exactly where Herod's advisors told us to go. So perhaps their following of a star was in an incidental sense, not in a direct one. And the reason for that will become clear soon. But suffice it to say this, and this is one of the things that we're going to get into. The wise men already knew to go to Israel to find the Messiah before they saw a star. And you'll find out why. So now that we've cleared up some of these misconceptions, let's begin to paint a picture of who these wise men were and why it matters to us right now. Okay? We're given certain clues as to who these men were when we look in the text and we find a few things. Okay? The word that's used to describe them, the area from which they came, and the response of King Herod when they arrived. So the word that's used to describe them, the direction from which they came, and the response of King Herod when they arrived. Okay, so the word that's used to describe them is the word magi. They are called the magi. And the area from whence they came is 
the east. So as it turns out, there's actually a great deal that can be known about this particular group of men known as the Magi. When we look at the rest of scripture and we take clues from other passages in the Bible, the word Magi is derived from a longer term, Magistanes, which we'll break down here in just a bit. History tells us that there were four great empires in the ancient world. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. One of them, of course, is where most of the New Testament occurs, and that's in the Roman Empire. But all four empires at various times were at war with each other, conquering various parts or, or at times conquering altogether. And one of the places where that happened was in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, we read the story of the writing on the wall, right? In which the Babylonian Empire falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. And these two empires merge and become known as an empire uh, known as Parthia, okay? And, and we also learn from Daniel some very important things about this group of guys known as the Magi. In Daniel chapter 2, there's a story that most of us are familiar with. King Nebuchadnezzar has this series of strange dreams which no one can interpret. So he summons together all of his magicians, his fortune tellers, his advisors, and he commands them, tell me what the dream was and interpret it or I will kill you all. Now this group of magicians and advisors and fortune tellers that he gathers together are described in the book of Daniel with a particular word. That word is magi. Now the problem was none of the magi could tell uh, the king what his dream was or much less interpret it. And so they were in a very bad spot. None of them could do it except for one. One man who was a Jew taken from Jerusalem in exile to Babylon. And his name was Daniel. Daniel tells the king what his dream was. And then he interprets the dream. And in so doing, he rescues all of the magi from being killed by the king. And so Daniel is elevated by King Nebuchadnezzar to ruler of the Magi. He becomes the head Magi. Later on in the book of Daniel, some of the other Magi become jealous of Daniel. They try to have him killed by having him thrown in the lion's den. They're jealous that someone else from the outside has been brought in and now is in charge of their group. Well, as we all know, the, that, that plot fails. Daniel lives and he continues to lead the Magi. Even through their transition from one empire to another. So here we find something incredibly important regarding the Magi. The Magi at one point were not only led but also rescued from death by a Jewish prophet. And this Jewish prophet wrote in startling detail prophecies regarding the future coming Messiah. 
Daniel wrote about where the Messiah would be born, what he would be like, even what his death would accomplish. And so these prophecies are esteemed not only by the Jews who returned to Jerusalem, there's also a group of magi who esteem these as well. And they continue to pass down his wisdom and and prophecies to future magi. This lays the foundation among the magi for the future magi to come. We take from this and extrapolate the fact that the magi that came to visit Jesus, in my opinion, were not pagans randomly following a star, knowing nothing about this king of the Jews. The magi that visited Jesus were believers in the God of Daniel. And they had been waiting for the Messiah to come just as Daniel had prophesied. It's even possible that some of the Magi were direct descendants of Daniel himself or from his Jewish counterparts because Daniel was not the only Jewish Magi at the time. He was among a group of exiles, which included his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as you VeggieTales fans know them as Rakshak and Benny. So they laid the foundation for the future. Next is... is what I consider one of the most fascinating parts of the story. And that is the role, the role of the Magi in the Parthian Empire. The role of the Magi in the Parthian Empire. If you remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den, you remember that some of the Magi come up with this cruel plot to have Daniel killed. And you remember that when they go to King Darius, they have him pass a new law. And this law, as you recall, was according to the law of the Medes and Persians. Okay, so Darius passes this law and stamps it according to the law of the Medes and Persians. This codified law was a set of law so firm that not even the king could go against it. That's why he feels trapped afterwards. That's why afterwards when he figures out that he's been duped, he's like... Uh, my, my hands are tied. What am I supposed to do? I can't change the law. It's been codified according to the law of the Medes and Persians. And the Magi knew that. So they thought that it was the perfect trap. But what's incredibly interesting is that when we study the history of the law of the Medes and the Persians, we find that the Magi actually had a tremendously important role in the monarchy. You see, the, the Magi were not just advisors to the king. The Magi, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, elected the king. It was the Magi that chose who the next king would be. Now they chose the next king based on a number of candidates that had the proper lineage. So based from the the pool of candidates with the proper lineage, the Magi elected the next king. Thus, magi were incredibly powerful in the Parthian Empire. That is why when you study the history of the magi, they are sometimes referred to as the kingmakers. That is something to write down. The magi in the Parthian Empire were referred to as the kingmakers. These powerful men, 
studied the genealogies of candidates, and then elected kings. And then the kingmakers would remain on the king's advisory council. They would offer him their wisdom, their guidance, their magic tricks. Now the king was powerful, okay? Make no mistake, the king was powerful, even powerful enough to have Magi killed. But the king could not go against the law of the Medes and the Persians. Or the king himself could be deposed by the kingmakers. This explains why in Matthew chapter 2, King Herod freaks out the way that he does when the kingmakers arrive in Jerusalem. At the time of Jesus, the Parthian king, Phraates IV, had been deposed. Uh, One of the cool things that we saw at at the Creation Museum, actually I think it was the Ark where we were actually looking at it, is this visual timeline of history. And it's like this tall and like 20 feet long. And what's really cool about this is you can visualize all the things on earth that are going on at the same time. Pieces that seem random, but when you see them all together, you're like, oh, so this was all going on at once. Well, when when this was happening in in, in Matthew chapter 2, In Parthia, Phraates IV, the king, has been deposed. And the kingmakers were in the process of selecting a new king. Now, now the Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire had been at odds with each other for a long time leading up to this. The Parthians had even made an attempt on Herod's life several decades prior. So King Herod has already been, uh, they've already attempted to, to assassinate King Herod, the Parthians. So when the kingmakers roll into town saying they're in search for the new king, Herod sees this as a direct threat to his power and yet another attempt on his life. So let's, let's sum this up. Okay, Who were the magi? The magi, also known as the kingmakers, were a group of powerful men who aided in ruling the Medo-Persian Empire, selecting the king, advising him in all matters of his rule. So all of that now leads us back to Matthew chapter 2. And that information takes this story and blows it wide open. Knowing who they were tells us what they were doing in Israel and their motivation in coming to see Jesus. And it tells us a little bit more about what the nativity actually looked like. Here's something cool. It's it's recorded by a number of ancient historians how the Magi would travel. Because of their stature, because of their power, these guys traveled with an enormous entourage. Just one magi traveling by himself would have not ridden a camel, but a powerful horse. And he didn't ride that horse by his onesie, okay? He traveled with a military presence of anywhere to 1,000 to 10,000 armed soldiers, okay? There's a a historical account of one magi traveling with an army of 10,000 people, He would have also traveled with a host of servants, animals, and of course, heavily heavily guarded valuables. 
Now, we know from Matthew chapter 2 that there's more than one magi. We don't know how many, but we do know that there's more than one. So quite likely, the group that we're talking about isn't three random dudes riding into town on camels that no one would have noticed. Quite likely, what we have is a group of thousands of people showing up to Herod's door in an enormous caravan going through Jerusalem with a message. The kingmakers are here to worship a new king. All eyes are turning on this spectacle. They knew about this new king because of the former chief of the Magi, the prophet Daniel. And in studying the prophecies, they're shown by the God of the Old Testament in whom they believe the Messiah is here. And remember, one of the ways that the Magi determined who should be king is selecting the candidate from the proper lineage. Have you ever wondered why Matthew begins with a genealogy? Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 17 traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And then talks about his birth. And then the kingmakers show up. Not a coincidence. So this is no longer a, a cute story with three guys on camels bringing some expensive stuff to a newborn. This is an incredibly powerful display showing everyone in Jerusalem, Jesus is king. And don't miss this either. This is confirmation that, that the entire Bible is telling the same story. You can see things throughout the Bible that are woven together as a tapestry. That when you, when you step back and you take a bird's eye view and, and you see the, the foreshadowings, it's, it's amazing. This is a familiar story in the line of scripture. Because this is now the third sort of time that, that this, sort of thing is, this, this sort of thing has happened. The story of Joseph in Genesis, the story of Daniel, and now the story of Jesus. Joseph was a Hebrew wise man who interpreted the dreams of the king and was then elevated above all others as a king and saved the lives of the entire kingdom. Daniel was a Hebrew wise man who interpreted the dreams of the king and was then elevated above all others as a king and saved the lives of the rest of the wise men. And now Jesus, a Hebrew boy, will be elevated above all others as king and will save the lives of the whole world. This thread has been running through the entirety of the Bible. Now you might say, okay, fascinating stuff, cool information, but what does it teach me right now? What do I take from it today? What, what am I supposed to walk away with other than some great information. I think there are two lessons that we take. How we should be devoted to the eternal king and how we should follow after him. So, finally, at long last, we're at point number one. Jesus should be king of our lives. Jesus should be king of our lives. 
remember what was happening at the time of the birth of Jesus. The Parthian kingdom is in disarray. The king has been deposed and the kingmakers are right in the middle of selecting who is going to be the next king in the kingdom. So this is without a doubt the most important moment of their entire lives. This is the moment that the kingmakers were made for, okay? This is what everything has been leading up to. For most of them, if not all of them, this would be the only time in their lifetime that a new king would be selected. This is their life-defining moment. It is the most important time for who they are. And because it was political, you can be sure that there's a number of parties and factions that are jockeying for their candidate, okay? There's great debate, great discussion. Their decision is gonna shape the future of the kingdom. And right in the middle of all that, a group of them gets up and leaves and travels 1,200 miles to Bethlehem, bringing an enormous caravan of people with them. Why? Why would they do that? I'm sure that their contemporaries were looking at them like they're crazy. Are you nuts? You're leaving now? Out of all the times that you should be here doing your job, it's not. Why are you leaving now? Well, they were saying in no uncertain terms by what they were doing, we are more concerned with the eternal king than we are with whoever sits on this earthly throne. Our devotion and our trust is in one who is far greater than any person here. As concerned as we are with with whoever the guy is that'll be our next leader, we are far more concerned with the guy who's gonna be our savior. Now, Don't get me wrong, these guys were still involved in the process of selecting a new king. After returning to Persia, it's another two years later that they they elected a brand new king, a a, a guy named Phraedices. I can't imagine I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Phraedices is the new king that they select in Parthia. But these guys leave in the middle of the deliberation. In the middle of the election process, these guys leave because the Messiah that they had been waiting for had finally arrived and they needed to go and worship him first. That that should be tremendously convicting to us. Which kingdom are we more devoted to? Which kingdom are are we more concerned with? Which kingdom uh, demands more of, of our thoughts? Which kingdom gives us more hope? Which kingdom brings us more fear? Is our hope in the eternal king or is our hope in some earthly kingdom? We just went through this whole series, One God Under Nation, talking about this very thing that that our hope is not in an earthly kingdom or in an earthly leader. Our hope is in an eternal savior, a king who sits on the throne of heaven forever. And so if he is not the king of our lives over everything, we are missing what these guys did not miss. 
they left in the most important part of their entire earthly history to go and worship the eternal king. Are we willing to do that? Is Jesus truly the king of our lives? Point number two. The kingmakers show us how we must follow Jesus. The kingmakers show us how we must follow Jesus. There's something that I've always wondered in reading this story. Every time that I've read this story about the Magi, there, there's something that, that nev- never made sense to me. They've gone through all of this trouble to travel 1,200 miles to Bethlehem. They've brought thousands of people with them. They've spent a wealth of resources, time, money, effort. These guys are the kingmakers, right? And they've gone through all the trouble to kneel before Jesus, saying to him, you are the king. But then they do the weirdest thing in verse 12. After being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. After doing all of that, they leave. They come all this way. They've done all this stuff. They've made all these moves. They drop their gifts and then peace out. Why don't they stay? Why don't they just set up shop right there in Bethlehem, and just hang out with Jesus for the rest of his life. They obviously recognize who he is, right? But instead of staying with him, they go back to Persia. Why would they do that? Because they were saying something just as important with their leaving as they were with their arriving. With their arrival, they are saying, you are the king. But what were they saying with their departure? Well, remember the job of the Magi. It was twofold. First, the Magi would study the lineage of candidates and they would select who would be the next king. They would would elect the king. But then, what did they do? Their second part of their job is they would stick around and be on his advisory council. They would be his checks and balances. They would be the ones to offer him wisdom and guidance. They would help the king rule. So when the Magi show up to worship King Jesus and then they leave, they are saying something incredibly important. You are the king and you don't need my help to rule, you don't need my advice. I can't guide you. I can't tell you what to do. I can't offer you my wisdom. I have nothing supernatural to show you. I cannot be on your advisory council. You rule without me. You don't need me, Jesus. You're the king and you don't need a council. That guy in Parthia, he needs a council. You don't. And that is perhaps the most important lesson that we learn from the Magi. 
And that is how we should let King Jesus lead. Okay, we want to be kingmakers who decide who should be king. But even if we decide that Jesus should be king, we want to be on his advisory board. Do we not? We want to say, okay, Jesus, you're, you're in charge, but I'm going to give you some advice on how you should lead. You're in, you're in charge, but I've got some great ideas for how you should make your plan known. Matter of fact, let me tell you every day as I pray to you how I think you should be leading in my life. Let, let me advise you. I, I've got it all figured out, Lord. I've got it all figured out. This is how it should go. How about you just bless it? But the Magi, the, the Magi trusted Jesus in such a way that said, okay, you're in charge. And then they leave. They just leave. This is implicit trust. This is saying you are the ruler and you don't need any help whatsoever from us. That is how we should treat our king. We should treat Jesus with the same level of trust that the kingmakers treated him with. We should, yes, make him king, but also step down in humility and stop telling him how to rule. And then whatever he decides, that's the hard part, whatever he decides as he rules, we're not second-guessing. What, whatever he decides as he shows us his plan, wh- whatever he thinks is best, we're not going, actually, okay, you're in charge. You say it, I obey it. That's it. I am not on God's advisory council. But that's not all the magi did. They, they left with a mission. They returned to their home and they returned to their job armed with the knowledge of the true king as they continued to serve in the world. Essentially, what they were doing is saying, as servants of the true king, we trust you to rule and we will bear your truth to a pagan world. And so they went back home and they kept doing their, their, uh, their, their job as magi. They trusted the king and then they became his ambassadors. They worshipped and then they went back on mission to their homes, to their jobs, to their oikos. So what about you? Are you trusting in the king, letting him rule, And then saying, my job is to now be your ambassador at home. My job is to be your ambassador where I work. My job is to be your ambassador where I hang out with people. My job is to be your ambassador wherever I go, whatever my calling is, whatever my corner of the universe happens to be, and whoever I'm around, those people need to know about the true king that is in charge. Is that how you live? Every single week, we end with the same mission statement here on Sunday nights. The mission starts after church. 
That's the Magi. The Magi said, you're in charge. Now the mission starts. After we leave this place. We come to worship. We come to live high. We come to present our gifts. And then we leave to go be your ambassadors in the world. I think that that is a lot more valuable than three random dudes on camels with three boxes of expensive stuff left at a barn. I hope that from now on, every single time you see the Magi, you remember the Kingmakers and their lesson to us about what it looks like to make Jesus King and trust Him as Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, thank you for the fascinating history. God, I pray that we would be reminded that you are king, you are Lord, you're in charge. God, I pray that if there's anybody here or watching right now online or or listening to this later on the podcast, anyone under the sound of my voice who has not made you king of their life, Lord, I pray that you would call them to that surrender. That you would show them that salvation is not about acknowledging mentally. Salvation is not about believing in a fact. Salvation is a matter of making you king. God, I pray that if there's anyone who has not made you king, or that you would call them to trust in you as the king of their lives. God, I pray for those of us that have at one point or another made that decision to make you king. But in so many ways, we are trying to remain on your advisory council. God, I pray that you would humble us. That you would remind us that you know exactly what you're doing. That your wisdom far exceeds our little pea brains. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you, knowing that your heart is good, your heart is kind, you're a good father, a righteous ruler, that we would step back and allow you to do whatever it is that you desire to do. God, I thank you for truth. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict us in the places that we need conviction. God, that you would encourage us in the places that we need encouragement. That you would guide our hearts in every single one of these ways. And then, Lord, that you would send us out on mission. Send us out from this place with a passion for the King. Let us be your ambassadors and your light in a dark world. And Lord, may the banner of Jesus be leading our entourage wherever we go. I pray that you have equipped us to go out and live out the gospel every single day. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.